Good morning, Primitive Christian Church. Come on, guys, we can do better than that. Good morning, Primitive Christian Church. How many of you guys excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Hallelujah, we serve an awesome God. We serve a mighty God. We serve a faithful God. And the fact that we are here today and we are breathing is a testimony to his grace and his mercy. Praise the Lord, somebody. It's a privilege and an honor to be here with you guys this morning and share the bread of life. But before we start, I just want to take a moment to excuse our senior pastor Mark and Pastor Enid that have taken some time off before that hustle and bustle of the holidays. Right? They're, they're serious about getting rest and recharge and relax. But if I know anything about them, they're watching us right now. So make sure you sit up straight, make sure you look good and you behave yourselves, all right? <laughs> I also want to take a moment to greet those watching us over the internet. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's wave at those. Yay! Right? We have some friends in Berkhamsted, UK. We have some friends in Tennessee and all around the nation tuning in to take part in this service with us. I'm excited about today because many of you guys know that today is the first Sunday in Advent. And so this kicks off the next four weeks, the season of hope and expectation as we wait for the birth of the Christ Jesus. And so as we launch into this season with great expectation, today I'm going to be preaching under the title, Staying Woke When Things Get Cray Cray. <laughs> That's right. So if you're taking notes, write that one down, Staying Woke when things get cray cray. And for those that are not adept at New York urban linguistics, the translation is underneath, remaining vigilant during <laughs> precarious times. <laughs> and so we're gonna be reading today from Mark chapter 13, verses one and verses two. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me there. And so I noticed we have a lot of new family members here and so you may or may not have seen me preach before, so I'm here to tell you this. If you thought you were here for a nice, quiet Sunday, you were wrong. Because maybe you thought you were gonna be a spectator, but I'm gonna warn you, this is a fully participatory service. So let's practice right now. Can I get an amen? amen. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah. Praise the Lord, somebody. Lord. Raise a clap offering to the Lord. All right, you guys are ready. So let's jump right into the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, reads as such. And I'm reading from the New International Version of Scripture. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. This says the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come before your presence this morning, my God. And so we do so with great expectation. We pray that your word come forth with power, my God, to speak to your sons and your daughters. You know what they need. You know what they need to hear, my God. And so I hide behind your cross this morning, and I ask for you to increase while I decrease. Speak to your sons and your daughters in a powerful way. And we thank you in advance for what will happen in this service in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said... Amen. As I read this and I thought about the reaction of the disciples here, the only thing I could think of was my own experience that I had when I visited one of the most beautiful cathedrals here in New York City, St. Patrick's Cathedral. And if the AV team can help me and just put up that picture, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with it, but it's huge, it's big, and it's beautiful. If we could just put up that picture. And one day, um, the highest ranking uh, clergy of the Catholic Church, Cardinal Timothy Dolan, invited a delegation from my job to visit with him at his home for breakfast and then to go next door to St. Patrick Cathedral where he was raising up a mass in honor of our work. 
And so I knew this was an important meeting, right? He um, has tons of stuff to do, and it was very gracious for him to invite us over for this. And so the night before, I wanted to make sure that I was ready, and so I pull out you know, my suit, I got my clothes ready, and I checked my calendar once again. And the calendar invite said 6 a.m. breakfast, 7 a.m. mass. And so I made sure the next morning I got up early, I went there, I got there a few minutes early, I rang the doorbell, and his housekeeper graciously opened the door. She showed me in and sat me at the parlor. Five minutes passed, 10 minutes passed, 15, 20, 30 minutes, and I don't see anybody from my job. And I'm getting a little concerned because I was like, oh my goodness, what did I do? It says on my calendar, 6 a.m. breakfast, right? And so down this majestic staircase comes Cardinal Dolan, and he sees this hungry Puerto Rican sitting in his parlor. <laughs> and so I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I must have mixed it up. I'm sure it was mass first and breakfast second. And here I am, this hungry heathen, sitting in his parlor, waiting to be fed while everyone else is being holy in the chapel. But he was very gracious. He comes downstairs and he's like, young lady, you must be here for the mass. Let me show you the way in. And so from his parlor, there was like a secret staircase that we went to that led through like, to like a secret tunnel that went uh, to the back. And then when you got out, it led you out right in the front of St. Patrick's Cathedral. Next picture. And I want you to know that this is behind the place where it's normally roped off, right? You see this big, beautiful cathedral. Well, when you get to the front, you can't really get to where the pulpit is. They rope that off and people can't get there, right? Where I came out was behind there, right? And so I'm there and I'm looking around. You could tell you never take me nowhere because I'm looking around, right? And I'm looking at the neo-Gothic architecture and I'm looking at the gold ornamentation and I'm looking at the stones and the mahogany inlay and all the beautiful details and it was breathtaking. And at that moment in time, I knew that God could reside in a space like this. It was majestic. But then the moment quickly wore off when I saw this. I turned around, and what I saw was a thousand set of eyes staring at me, sitting in this big cathedral, like, what is she doing? Including the president of my company, members of my board. And so I quickly tried to hide and, and sat down. But as I thought about the disciples' experience, it reminded me of that, right? Something, you know, you're standing before something so majestic and so awesome, but it was clear from this interaction that Jesus was somewhere totally different. See, we need to understand that when we find Jesus in this portion of scripture, he had just finished teaching in the in inner courts of the temple. He was done for the day, he's making his way out, and so the disciples tried to engage him in some small talk. But it was clear that Jesus had other things on his mind. As a matter of fact, Jesus shuts down the disciple right away. Why? Was he in a snippy mood? Did he have a bad day? Was he in a rush? We need to understand that in this particular piece of scripture, every moment in Jesus' life mattered. Why? Because this was his last week on earth. And so a few chapters before, chapter 13, we see the journey that the Gospel of Mark takes us, right, from Jesus' triumphal entry, right, through a series of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. And then after chapter 13, we see the betrayal of Jesus, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So Jesus didn't have time to waste talking about small talk and no stones, and so what looks like a normal interaction, Jesus uses to school the disciples on what to expect in the end days. Meanwhile, the disciples are clueless. This is one of those times when I think to myself, really, guys, you're with the creator of the heavens and the earth. You ain't got nothing better to talk about. I would have like a zillion and one different questions about how things work and about why things are the way they are. And they're talking about stones. Now we need to understand that the disciples probably didn't know better. They hadn't wrapped their mind around the brevity of Jesus' time with them. So they're shooting the breeze like they got all the time in the world. We also need to understand that the temple that they were looking at was breathtaking. See, in this gospel, 
This is the only visit of Jesus to Jerusalem. And so they respond the way that you would expect a country person to respond to seeing big city sites for the first time. Right? They were breathtaking. They were, they were speechless. This is what they looked at. If we can show the next temple, I mean the next picture, the picture of the temple. It was impressive. Herod's temple, as it was uh, as come, as, uh, come to be called, is located on top of a mountain, and it was huge. I want us to understand that archaeologists have uncovered individual stones as large as 44 feet by 11 feet by 14 feet that weighed over 500 tons. Let me put that in context for you. This is an average brick that we use to build something. The stones in Herod's temple go from that wall all the way over here, about as deep as this stage, and about as tall as three people standing up, three of me standing up on each other's shoulders, one of ours compared to one of Herod's. Now think about that, right? When you think about it like that, you can see why they were breath that they were breathtaking. We also need to understand that the temple was beautiful. Jewish historian Josephus says that the outside was covered with gold plates and they were so pure and so brilliant that when the sun shone on them, it was blinding. And the marble, the marble was so white and it was so polished and it was so, so, so vivid that from distance strangers thought that there was snow on the temple because it was such a pure white. Now imagine living in a time before skyscrapers, living in a time before modern technology, in a time where there was no running water, where there was no electricity, and seeing something like that. It's understandable that they would want to pause and take it all in, that they probably felt awe and admiration, right? a feeling of reverential respect for this beautiful piece of art. But Jesus, he ain't impressed, guys. As a matter of fact, he drops a bomb on them and he tells them, hey, look, you see those stones that you're admiring? You see that magnificent building that you're looking at? That's going to end up in a heap. And this observation is the first in a series of prophecies that he makes in order to equip them for what was coming. In other words, he's warning them that the world as they know it is coming down. And even that beautiful temple that they're admiring is no longer going to be there. And in the next few verses, if you look at verse 3 on into the rest of the chapter, we see that Jesus uh, uh, takes a pause by the Mount of Olives, and he gives them a detailed account about what to expect in the last days. Scholars call this section the Olivet Discourse, named after the location. And Jesus launches into 19 different precepts to guide them through the end times. Now imagine the shock and surprise that the disciples felt, right? They were making like an average observation, run-of-the-mill small talk, and Jesus comes out of left field and tells them all this stuff that's coming their way. He tells them about earthquakes and famines in their future. He tells them about wars and rumors of wars, about false prophets, about brother turning against brother, children rebelling against their parents. He paints a scary picture. Jesus was extra. And although he doesn't give them an exact date and exact time, he tells them exactly what to look for. Not so that they can be afraid, but to better equip them once the time comes. So this apocalyptic eschatology or these end time prophecies that we see in scripture are not about fear. It's about God working on behalf of humanity. And that is what Jesus introduces here. Now, there's some leaders out there that use 
these parts of scripture to scare people to preach fire and to preach brimstone, to preach that everyone's going to hell, that we need to turn our lives around. Do we need to turn our lives around? Yes, we do. But I'd like to think that this writing is about putting our hope in a God that will bring his people through. It's about putting our hope in a God that wins at the end. So here, Jesus is telling us, listen, although things are going to get rough, I've given you the inside scoop. I've told you what to look for. So when you see the things happening around you, you don't have to be afraid because I've already given you the insider information. This is Jesus telling humanity, listen, it's going to get rough, but don't stress, don't fret, don't worry, I got you. But even with this insider information, sometimes we're like the disciples and we put our trust in man or we put our trust in our own intelligence. We create a firm foundation in the things of the world and we miss it. We put our trust in things that are not secure. We begin to admire the wrong things. The other danger here is not only worshiping the stones, is when we begin to embody them. How often are we like the stones in the temple, hardened into one singular way of thinking, impressive looking from the outside, but immovable and fickle on the inside? See, the disciples missed the significance of Jesus' conflict with religious authorities. He missed how he had condemned the temple establishment. They only saw the temple's beautiful exterior. But the good physician, Jesus, could see what was going on inside and can see the cancer rooted deep inside. See, these verses remind us that it's not about stones or fancy edifices. It's not about big buildings. It's not about steeples or spacious buttress cathedrals. But what Jesus really cares about is the valuable commodities inside the church, which is you and I. But we need to stay woke. Now, I know that some of y'all laughed when you heard the title, but I want you to know that I chose it with some intentionality. See, the term staying woke has long been associated with a higher level of social consciousness and activism. As a matter of fact, the earliest known instance of using the term woke was as a slang for political or social awareness. And it was introduced in May of 1962 by the New York Times as they published an article related to white beatniks appropriating black culture. And then it gained popularity ever since the Ferguson riots, right? We remember that, where it involved the fatal police shooting of an unarmed black teenager, Michael Brown. And so staying woke calls for people to pay attention to what's happening, to see beyond the media filtering, to see beyond the spin that's often attached to stories, and truly see what's happening beyond the veneered version of the truth that sometimes we're being served up. And that's exactly what Jesus is asking the disciples to do right here, to see beyond the white and shiny marble of the temple and truly see what was happening underneath. Because not everything that gleams on the outside is healthy on the inside. Look at the crisis right now in modern evangelicalism. You have a faction of people more concerned with partisan politics than the poor. You have a faction of people more concerned with access than ethics, more concerned with influence than the integrity of those extending the influence. And as a result, large swaths of people don't even want to be defined as evangelicals anymore because the world thinks we're so rooted in our ways, they define, us, they define us by our discontent for those that are not like us instead of by our love for one another. That was not the model left to us by Jesus, guys. And if we're not careful, like those stones, those carefully thought out arguments, that self-righteous indignation we have towards those that are different than us will be thrown down. 
we've got to stay woke. Because things that may look solid, if you look at them close enough, you're going to find cracks and crevices. Let's consider this idea of a Christian nation that we supposedly live in. How can we call ourselves a Christian nation when our constitution mentions indigenous people as savages? It's true, I'm not making it up. When it mentions African Americans as property that are equal to only three-fifths of a person and that leave women with no say at all. That's not Christian. But we gotta stay woke. An example that's very personal to me has to do with the Commonwealth status of Puerto Rico where I was born. See, I was shocked after Hurricane Maria to see that in a poll done by the New York Times that only 46% of Americans knew that Puerto Ricans were US citizens. So it begs the question, how did this piece of land disconnected from the mainland, so distinct in culture, become a part of the US. Let me add a little clarity for you. See, in 1898, during the Spanish-American War, Puerto Rico was invaded by the United States as a blow to Spain and subsequently became a possession of the US. Now, our history books painted all nice. They call it annexation, but in my opinion, it was whitewash stealing making PR one of the last existing colonies in contemporary history. Why do I say that? Because the people of the island had no say what happened to them. It means that one day a few people in power decided that this piece of land was strategic. They went in and they raped and they pillaged indigenous communities. They massacred any dissidents. They changed the official language in schools from Spanish to English and imposed their culture on a people that did not invite them in. That's like me coming to your house and declaring that it's mine. And please note, I'm not being cynical, I'm not being racist. These are facts, guys. You guys can look them up. So when folks stroll around talking about, let's make America great again, what do you mean, for you? Because what you call great, my ancestors will call murder. Sometimes the things that we think are rock solid, the things that we think are unblemished, the things that look pure, look very different when we take a closer look. So we gotta stay woke. We have to open our eyes and see things for what they really are. It's like being stuck in the matrix your whole life and then taking that little pill that allows you to see the manipulation of the machines behind the scenes. We have to be a socially conscious people that are paying attention to the signs of the time and the manifestation of the very things that Jesus told us to look out for. American writer and social critic James Baldwin said it best when he said, we can't fix what we don't face. So we have to stay woke. And that brings me to the second part of my title, Cray Cray. Now some of you guys may not be familiar with that. Young people use that all the time. And that is derived from the word crazy, but it's not just run of the mill crazy, everyday crazy, it's crazy to an exponential level. And I want you to understand that I don't think I need to convince anyone, right, that we're living in crazy times. Just look at some of the things that happened this week. Matt Lauer and Russell Simmons both accused of sexual harassment. A 4.4 level earthquake in Delaware, guys, Delaware. I know people here in the city and friends out in, in Pennsylvania that felt the shaking in their homes. North Korea launching a new ballistic missile that can make it all the way to New York City. And let's talk about what happened this weekend with this tax plan that was just approved. That benefits the rich and targets programs for the poor. My God, we are living in crazy times. So how do we make it through these times when things we've known and trusted may not be what they thought, when new levels of division, new levels of dysfunction, new levels of deception are infiltrating our society? How do we make it through when cray-cray is the new reality? 
The key to making it through can be found in verse 13. What does verse 13 tell us? In the latter part, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Come on, I don't know if you got that. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Hallelujah. Now understand the tension there. Jesus said that those ginormous stones in the temple were going to fall, but that people could stand? How is that? Because I want you to know that in the end days, if all we do is put our trust in ornate buildings, if all we do is put our trust in the institution we call church, if all we do is protect our religion and not pay attention to our relationship with God, those things will come down and the only thing that will be left are people who have stood firm. Another translation puts it like this, people who endure. I'm here to remind you that we can't just attend the church. We are the church. And I've said it to you guys before, but we need to go make sure that our presence as Christians is reverberating all through our communities, reverberating in our families, reverberating in our jobs in this city. That means loving God and loving people, standing up for the rights of the widow and the orphan and the stranger. It means living the principles of Matthew 25, feeding the hungry, visiting the prisoners, clothing the naked. It means extending compassion wherever you go. It means speaking truth to power, but then also sharing the truth with those who are hurting. We need to use our influence as Christians so that as institutions fall, as the world shifts around us, as cray cray becomes the new reality, people can see Jesus through us. So how do we do that? Verse 13 tells us those who stand firm will be saved. So let's break that down. Number one, we stand. We stand. And so I've asked two lovely assistants to come up and help me with this next section because I want them to help me illustrate what it means to stand. Let's give a, let's give a warm welcome to Jermaine and to Samuel. They're going to be helping me. And so what I've asked them to do is to build a wall for me. Because what I want us to understand is that oftentimes we go and we get these degrees. We go and we build ourselves with knowledge. We go and we, we become experts in math and in physics and in science. And we plot things out and we use fancy materials. And we think that we're building things that are strong. And we think we're building things that are feats of ingenuity. Things that will, will take people's breath away. Things that will stand the test of time. But I want you to understand that this is what God sees right here. A bunch of youngins playing with their little toys. Because I want you to understand that since we serve a God who doesn't subscribe to the concept of time, we're all youngins to him. 50, 60, 70, man, you're just getting started. And so what we do is we build up what we think is strong. We build up what we think is secure. And what happens is that life comes around and shakes us and, and, and shakes the core of what we're building. And we find out that it's not secure. Why? Because we're youngins playing with our toys. Thank you, guys. Give a, give a, cl a clap to my two lovely senses. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And so we say to ourselves, surely my family will be financially secure if we hoard everything we have for a rainy day. Ain't no crisis could come and shake that foundation. Surely if I make friends with the right people, it will open doors for me. Surely if I go to school and I get a number of degrees and I understand the world, or if I go to seminary and I understand God, I don't need God, I could figure out the world. Surely, if I live with my boyfriend or if I live with my girlfriend before we get married, then we'll really see if we're compatible, right? Because you need to test the milk before you buy the cow. And surely we'll have a long relationship. 
because culture has convinced us that in those things we'll find security. But what happens is the first storm that comes, the first wind that comes, because we're youngins playing with our toys. Can I get an amen, somebody? Truth be told, this is how I felt after 9-11. I'll be honest with you guys. I don't know how many of you guys were in the city for that. I was. And I remember feeling so vulnerable. Because before that time, I'm like, we live in the greatest city in the world. Sorry for those that are tuning in from other places. It just is. <laughs> we live in New York City. We have the greatest security and the biggest skyscraper. Who would have the guts to hit our city? And I remember moments after the second tower fell, feeling terrified because I didn't know if they were going to hit somewhere else. But what was beautiful was seeing how New Yorkers endured thereafter. People volunteered, people came together, people gave back. Why? Because their love, their connection to the city ran deep. And so we need to understand that to stand firm, we first need to evaluate how deep our roots go. Because that's what's going to help us when things get tough. What we use on the outside doesn't matter. What's underneath does. We've talked about it before. It's like a palm tree in hurricane-prone areas. They can bend in the wind and in the storm, no matter how fierce they are, even to like a 90-degree angle, and they won't break. Why? because they have fibrous roots that go out and roots that go down very deep. And then also the, the fibrous nature of the roots bring up nutrients that make the trunk very supple and able to bend. And so I'm here to tell you today, you need to pay less example to the leaves and the ornamentation and what's going out on the outside and you need to focus on the roots underneath. Come on, am I talking to anybody here? That's what we need to focus our attention. See, when we look at our roots, do we truly see the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 23 reminds us, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is that what you see? Or are you rooted in the unforgiveness of the past? Hmm. Or are you rooted in the old habits and addictions of the past? Or are you rooted in that survival mentality from the past that doesn't allow you to help those around you because you're just busy trying to survive? See, standing is about being rooted in Jesus who can ensure our roots are watered with life and watered with love and watered with compassion and who can make sure that we have the nutrients we need to grow strong and healthy. We got to be rooted in Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say, you got to be rooted in Jesus. Turn to your other neighbor and say, you got to be rooted in Jesus. Secondly, when we stand, we need to understand that by choosing to stand, it doesn't mean that trials aren't coming. It's knowing how to respond. See, when you're driving down and you see a speed bump and you see a sign for a speed bump, rather, what do you do? Do you speed up? No, you slow down unless you're Joe and you speed up. <laughs> Everyone else slows down. Because <laughs> you want your car to survive, right? If you look biblically, you see this Joseph. Joseph knew there was a famine coming, and so what did he do? During the years of plenty, he made sure he made some adjustments. He put some things away to get ready for those times of famine. We need to make some adjustments, beloved. So you may be asking to yourself, well, Pastor Enid, what adjustments? In your relationships with God and with people. See, we can't stand alone in Genesis 1. God acknowledged that it was not good for man to be alone. So what did he do after he created man? He revised his plan and he created the superior gender. 
just kidding. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I didn't get a lot of amens from the men there. <laughs> but seriously, if you want to stand for a sustained, sustained period of time, you got to be right with God, but you can't do it alone. You need to focus on the vertical as well as horizontal relationships in your lives. You need that person that's going to support you, that's going to be there with you when you get weak, that if you're drowning in the quicksand, they'll reach out and pull you up. That can help you be strong when you're weak. But then you also need to turn around and provide that same support for others as well. I was convicted recently because I wasn't as supportive to a family member of mine. Many of you guys know that 30 days after Hurricane Maria hit the island of Puerto Rico, my grandmother passed away. And I remember getting the call that morning and I was actually preparing for a large speaking engagement here in New York. And I see the call come across and my brother tells me what, is ha what had happened. And I broke down and I cried. And I was so concerned about getting ready and getting off to this event and not making it late that I didn't stop to check in to see how he was feeling. And that night I felt so convicted, but I called him back. And as I talked to him, my heart broke because he had some unresolved issues with my grandmother. You see, there were some things that had happened and he hadn't spoken to her in many years. And the most heartbreaking thing about it was that he used to drive by her house every single day, but never worked up the courage to go talk to her and resolve it. Friends, we can't wait till it's too late. Don't assume that tomorrow you can fix it. Don't assume that tomorrow you can reconcile with that family member. You have to make adjustments today because we don't know what tomorrow's bringing. We may not get another opportunity. So we need to stand. The second thing this verse tells us is that we need to remain firm. Firm in what? Firm in God and his word. Firm in what he's asked you to do. Firm in what he's promised you. See, this prophecy of the destruction of the temple ended up playing a significant role in the crucifixion of Jesus. See, when Jesus was brought on trial, the formal accusation that they brought against him was a twisted version of what he said here about the destruction of the temple. Now, do you think he didn't know that was coming? No, he knew but yet he still stood firm. And what's crazy is that this prediction came true. In 70 AD, the Roman army built great fires at the base of the temple, and what happened was that it caused the foundation stones to crumble. Why? Because under intense heat, the calcium carbonate in marble disassociates to yield a gas and a powder. And so the walls ended up collapsing under their own weight, just like Jesus said. They became great piles of stone. And so I'm here to tell you that no matter how tough it may look, every stone has a vulnerability. Every stone has a vulnerability. And any of you guys have ever had a fierce battle of rocks, paper, scissors know this. <laughs> you put out rock, you think you got it, somebody comes with paper, you're like, oh. <laughs> Firm doesn't mean fixed. It doesn't mean immovable. On the contrary, you have to be flexible enough to withstand the pressure too rigid and you'll break. For example, did you know that skyscrapers actually sway in the wind? Did you guys know that? I was shocked when I found that out because in addition to the vertical force of gravity that they deal with, skyscrapers also have to deal with the vertical force of the wind. And so most skyscrapers are designed to move several feet, actually, just like a swaying tree without damaging their structural integrity. The Sears Tower, for example, can sway six inches, but in intense winds, it can sway up to 12 inches. It doesn't sound like a lot, right? That's like, but for a huge building, that's incredible. Now, the, they say the Empire State Building doesn't sway, it gives. <laughs> Sounds the same to me. <laughs> 
But at a wind gust of 110 miles an hour, the building gives about an inch and a half. And so we need to understand that we can't remain so fixed that when the storm comes, we'll break right over. We have to give as well. Remaining firm is also about longevity. We need to understand that when things change, when it gets cray-cray, we can't jump ship at the first sign of danger. It's not leaving the Lord when things get difficult. It's not changing churches the minute things get uh, difficult. It's not abandoning your marriage the minute that you have a blow-up. Remaining firm means staying till the end. It's staying in a superhero movie until the end so that you can watch what's after the credits. <laughs> it's binge watching your favorite series even after your favorite character is killed off. It's staying true to the Mets even after a bad season. We'll start a riot up in here. Finally, not only does Jesus advise us to stand and to remain firm, but he leaves us with one more piece of advice. In verse 37, in the NIV, the word which he uses to end kind of this, this pep talk to the disciples is watch. We need to also watch, brothers and sisters. Let's not forget the lesson that we learned from the Titanic. They were so confident in this marvelous ship. They were so confident in this big feat of modern science and ingenuity that they sailed into iceberg-infested waters without the proper equipment to look out and see what was happening and going way too fast. We've got to stay woke. There are icebergs all around us, and many of them are not seeing them until it's too late. We've got to stay woke. We have to pay attention. We can't be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. Read the paper, follow the news, listen to folks from various views, talk to people that don't share the same opinion as you, open your eyes and see what's happening internationally. We have to remain vigilant but not scared, aware but not paranoid, sober minded but not cynical. And as I close, I leave you with this short story on potatoes, <laughs> eggs, and coffee beans. Listen, Jesus told stories that connected with people. This connects with me. Don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, a daughter complained to her father that her life was miserable and that she didn't know how she was going to make it. She was tired of fighting and she was tired of struggling and she was having a difficult time in life. And every time she solved one problem, it seemed like there were 10 more lines up right behind it. And so her father, a chef by profession, took her to the kitchen. He filled three different pots with water and placed each on a high fire. In the first pot, he placed potatoes. In the second pot, he placed eggs, and in the third, ground coffee beans. And as the water began to boil, he sat there without saying a word to his daughter. His daughter moaned and complained about why she was sitting there, for she didn't understand what he was doing. And after 20 minutes, he turned off the burners. He took the potatoes out of the pot and he placed them in a bowl. He took the eggs out. He placed them in a bowl. He strained the coffee and placed it in a cup. And then he turned to her and asked, daughter, what do you see? And a little sarcastically, the daughter says, potatoes, eggs, and coffee. The father says, look closer. He said, touch the potatoes. She did, and she noticed that the potatoes were soft. Then he asked her to take an egg and break it, and after pulling off the shell, she observed that the inside was hard-boiled. Finally, he asked her to sip the coffee, and its rich aroma filled her nostril and brought a smile to her face. Father, what does this mean, he asked. He then explained that the potatoes and the eggs and the coffee beans had each faced the same adversity, the boiling water. However, each one reacted differently. 
The potato went in hard and went in strong and unrelenting, but in the boiling water became soft and weak. The egg was fragile. It had a thin outer shell protecting it li its liquid interior. But once it was put in the boiling water, the inside of the egg became hard. The coffee beans. The coffee beans were unique, though. After they were exposed to their adversity, after they were exposed to the boiling water, they changed the water and created something new. Which are you, he asked his daughter. When adversity knocks on your door, how do you respond? Are you a potato? Are you an egg? Or are you a coffee bean? In life, there are things that happened around us. In life, there are things that happened to us. But the only thing that truly matters is what happens within us. So I ask you today, church, which one are you? Isaac, if you can help me for a few minutes. The message that the Lord gave us today is one of hope. Hope in a God that loved us so much that he gave us a map to guide us into the future. A God that doesn't want us to be scared. A God that doesn't want us to be afraid. A God that doesn't want us to be worried when we see the craziness in our society. No. A God that wants us to remain secure in him. Because he's going to bring us through. The question is, how will you respond? Maybe you started out life like the potato and you were strong and you were hard because you had to learn how to protect yourself. But when the times get tough, you find yourself getting soft and weak. Maybe you're the type of person that's a little bit more fragile, a little bit more delicate. And because of the difficulty of life, because of the circumstances you've been through, you find that something inside of you has gotten hardened. Like the stones that we talked about in the temple. Or are you going to choose to be like the coffee bean? Are you going to have the adversity make you stronger? Bring out your, your flavor. Bring out what's unlocked inside of you. Is that the type of person that you're going to be? Are you going to allow the adversity of your current situation to create something new? We have to stand. We have to remain firm. And we have to watch. But all of that requires a choice. How? Will you respond? I want every person in here to stand with me as we get ready to close. I want all heads bowed and eyes closed. As we respond to the moving of the spirit in this moment. Maybe today's message touched you because you feel like you've hardened your heart. There's some things, there's some things inside of you, Lord, that you've, that are stone-like because you, you've just been trying to protect them. You've been trying to make it through all the challenging things that have come at you in life. But God is telling you, no, there's no need for that. I got you. I'm your shelter and strength. I'm your protection in times of trouble. And so if you want to come back, come back into a right relationship with God, I invite you to come up in the altar here today. Make that recommitment today. Don't assume you have tomorrow. Don't assume you have another opportunity. Today you have that opportunity. Or maybe you never established that relationship in the first place. You've never asked God to come into your heart as your Lord and your Savior. And you feel him pulling at you where there's a space for you at the altar of brokenness. So I invite you to come up here today. Yes. 
There are things that are crazy that are happening. Yes, there's a lot of things happening in the political world. There's a lot of things happening in our communities. There's a lot of things happening in our families. And it can be easily overwhelming. But today, 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 we could put those burdens at the feet of the master. Today, we can ask him to come in and be our strength when we're weak, to be our protection during those stormy times. Because he promises to save us. Yes, he does. But we need to make sure that we're in a right relationship with him first. And so if that's you, I invite you to come up here. I invite you to come up here. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful word that you gave us today, my God. The way that you challenged us not to be afraid, my God, of the things that come. Not to be afraid of the craziness that you've predicted would come our way, my God. But we stand firm on you. You are our rock. You are our firm foundation. And so we are not afraid. We are not scared, my God. We rest in you. Father, at this time, we recommit our lives to you, Lord. Oh, Father, we repent for those times that we've turned away from you when we've admired the things of the world, when we flirted with the things of the world, when we've put our trust in the things of the world instead of looking to you. We repent for those times. And we declare that today, my God, today, today, we reestablish that relationship with you where we put you first, where we trust you first, where we follow you first, where yours is the first and only voice that will grab our attention, my God. We invite you to guide us. We invite you to lead us. We invite you to take us by the hand and, and take us forward into the new season, my God. And we promise, my God, that when we won't look to the left, we won't look to the right, we will focus on you. Although we walk through the fire, we're not going to stress out about the flames because we know that we won't be burned. Although we walk through the water, we're not going to be overwhelmed by what's around us because we know we will not drown. You are a God that is faithful to his promises. And so we thank you because we know you're going to save us and bring us through. So we commit our lives to you once again, my God. Have your way with us so that as institutions fall, my God, people might see your face through us that everywhere we go, we might bring your presence, my God, and be your ambassadors, Lord, that we might be good, Lord, that we might be compassionate, that we might be patient, that we might be faithful, that we might be forgiving, that we might be loving in the same way that you are to us. And we ask these things in the name that is above all names, the mighty name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen.